3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. It is 7am, 7.01, on Tuesday the 16th of November. My name is Fung. We've also got Genevieve and Evie in the studio. Good morning. Morning. How cold is it this morning? Yeah, it's been terrible. I feel week. like at this point it's not right that I haven't put away my winter clothes. I'm wearing mm. two layers yeah. in the studio. It's like really, really blustery and cold all this week. Yeah. <sighs> just the rain has just been relentless. Yeah. Like slashing rain. This is supposed to be our fun, hot summer. Mm, I know. <laughs> hot girl summer. <laughs> um, but even I was just telling everyone before I was up at my mum's house and there was like, it was, what's it called? When it kind of is snowing, but then it melts too fast. It's called something. And I've just. Sleet. Sleet. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Sleeting. Or, yeah. Something like that. Um, it was doing that. Mm. It was freezing up there. Mm. It was like three degrees. Very, very cold. Although I feel like every year we do have this moment in November where we've had a couple of warm days mm. and then it suddenly goes really cold again. Yeah, yeah and, actually, and you're right. I feel like every year we're like, yeah. we complain is, about it. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Um, I was um, reading something yesterday, though. The Bureau of Meteorology uh, did post, like, you can compare the yearly temperatures, mm. like, with, like, this grid that they posted – Yesterday was the coldest day since 2006 yeah. in November. Oh. Yeah, coldest November day. Like, it's it's a proper cold snap. Okay. Yeah. And there's also only been, like, two or three days above 35 degrees this year, which wow. is wild. True. Yeah. True. <laughs> I do recall the start of the year being a bit lacklustre in terms of yeah summer. Yeah. yeah. I, La Nina's really hit us hard, but also, like... Just a few more sunny days. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Just scatter them in. It was beautiful in winter. <laughs> sunny all the time. Um, I feel like this weather just brings me back to lockdown. So I'm like, it's yeah. cold, so I'm going to stay in my house. Yeah. Like, yeah, I love it. I though. just feel conditioned. <laughs> I don't to have do to that. go anywhere. Um, I have to chat about i've been going to the movies a lot um recently which has been so good i'm sure some of our listeners would have been indulging in cinemas opening up and being able to see there's some great films uh, um out at the moment me and fong were talking about shiva baby which is so good i want to see it you should definitely see it it's really great yeah just relatable on any every i guess uh (laughs) (laughs) young femme person may relate to it and just with that interacting with family it's just everyone goes to these big family events and you always bump into the auntie and the grandma and it's oh yeah it goes through all of it so good very funny i I think they'd be really good especially since we're all kind of mentally strategizing how to deal with christmas this year um yes that's (laughs) such a good point yeah just like 
<laughs> the music molds so well with it as well to, I guess, really amp up the anxiety when it's just getting too stressful. There's an awkward situation. Like when I won't give uh, no, there's no spoilers or anything, but just she studies um, gender studies at uni. And obviously um, she's got a heavily Jewish family that doesn't really understand what gender studies is. And one of them's just like, Oh, what, you know, what gen the gender business? She's like, yes, the gender business. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's what I'm. That's what I'm doing. Just you know, put that in your link- LinkedIn profile. Yeah. The gender business. Yeah, literally. Um, but I saw this great film. If you're looking for a eerie psychological thriller, I feel like this like Scandinavia does it best. Mm. Um, I saw this Icelandic film called Lamb, mm. which is very, oh my God, the scene, uh, if, if you should see for anything, the cinematography and the scenes of Iceland are just insane, like Ooh. dramatic landscapes with like mountains and rivers. Um, but yeah, very eerie. Um, but yeah, so I've been loving it. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, I've only gone to see one movie so far. We went to see Annette the other week, which oh, was true. really, really great. Yeah, I, this is like we saw it on um, demand when it came out a couple of months ago. But it's obviously it's much better to see it in the cinema. Annette, yeah, you know, that... get, get a chop top and sit in oh, over my on God. a Monday. I got a piccolo. <laughs> <laughs> one of those. I felt very Kath and Kim. Um, <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> when the yeah. <laughs> I go to Brunetti's afterwards for a bit of cake. Oh, yeah. That's great. <laughs> Such a classic combo. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, on today's show, we will start off by replaying a section from Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. She spoke with Rowan Araf recently uh, from the Australian Centre for International Justice about... Uh, defending Palestinian civil society against Israel, labelling them as terrorists, uh, which is a really important uh, discussion. And then, Genevieve, you have yes. an interview yeah. later on. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm interviewing um, uh, two ladies that run a podcast called, sorry, excuse my language, Bitch WTF, <laughs> um, which is a podcast that tackles all things life, love, career, relationships, parenting, and finances. Um, but it uh, focuses on culturally and linguistically diverse peoples. Uh, so I'm very excited to chat to G and B about that. Cute. And then um, coming up at 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with Ella Simons, who is a 15-year-old climate school strike organiser. She was recently in Milan pre-COP26. So can't wait to speak to her about the conference itself, um, her thoughts, reactions, and, and what she and other young people would really like to see from our federal government. And then lastly, we will be interviewing our one and only Evie. <laughs> Evie, what are you going to chat to us about this morning? Um, so I wanted to have a chat about the Religious Exemptions Bill, which is currently in the lower house um, Victorian Parliament at the moment. It's going to be it, – well, it's currently being decided upon. Um, the Victorian Liberal Party is discussing what their stance is going to be um, – Obviously, a lot of attention at the moment is on the pandemic bill that is going to be read in the House today. Um, But I wanted to draw attention to this because um, the religious exemptions bill really affects the lives of LGBTQI people in schools in particular and people who work in schools and could 
potentially, you know, change their lives and make their lives much safer. Um, so, yeah, we'll have a chat about that and um, talk about what you can do to sort of influence your local MPs as well. Cool. Well, we'll be back with the news headlines right after this. Get your Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel and it is unlawful. Every day a group of supporters protests this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. I wanted to start off by giving us all an update on uh, vaccines, but especially in developing countries. So the COVAX scheme was supposed to deliver, well, they had a goal of delivering 2 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines, um, mainly to low-income countries by the end of this year. But where we're at currently is about a quarter of those um, doses oh, so doses have actually been shipped, yeah. And what I found really um, confronting is that more booster shots have now been administered in high-income countries than the total number of doses given to low-income countries since the pandemic The um, graph began. is really yeah. insane. Like yeah. there is uh, – we'll put it in the show notes. The There's an ABC News article talking about the um, targets that we were meant to reach and – the line of boosters versus the line of first shots or total shots rather for developing countries, just completely opposite. Mm. Um, You know, especially when we think about just how slow we were to act um, in the first instance. And then like, you know, the scare campaign around AstraZeneca, um, it's very embarrassing Mm. (laughs) that that we can't help our neighbours in Asia Pacific. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's not to say that we shouldn't get booster shots, but there is plenty to go around and there is plenty to assist other countries and Definitely. we should be helping them. Yeah, um, and I don't think, you know, it's actually going to be a slower process if it takes us longer to give everyone their first 
well, first and second doses um, of the vaccine. Like, even though, you know, a lot of people here and in the US and Europe are very excited about moving on, um, you can't, I don't know, I just, yeah, it's hard to, to really feel good about um, yeah. that when so much of the world is still struggling to um, acquire vaccines and then administer even their first dose. Yeah, and the people. and the same problem is happening in within Australia, just in um in the Northern Territory and in remote communities. We haven't put in the effort to make sure that they're all vaccinated, uh, because you know it's not easy. It's for them to access it. You actually have to go out there and make the concerted effort to do it. Um, there is a quote from the World Health Organization um about the booster program as well. They've been very critical of the way that boosters have been offered. Um, they've called for a moratorium on boosters where like, it's not required until the end of the year so that they can move those vaccine doses to those countries and those populations that are still below the 4 to 5% average um, because not even the frontline workers have been covered, mm. which is, yeah. yeah. Which is really serious, yeah. So the World Health Organization has now set a new target to achieve um, global vaccine coverage of 70% by mid next year. So hopefully, I don't know, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really up to those countries like um, Australia, uh, US, China, those bigger countries who have, you mm. know, who are up to maybe giving booster shots to their to their people to, yeah, think more about how they can yeah. donate. There's only so much that I guess who can advise for. And I mean, such a, just reading here in the ABC article in terms of the, you know, the Delta variant brought a lot of the vaccines to India and they kind of say, you know, we need uh, the vaccines just go where they need to go depending on the demand and everything. And that's why Africa missed out, but it's kind of like, you know, the Australian demand wasn't there. We just had the money to buy them. Mm. Um, Well, yeah, they, yeah. A lot of these countries don't have that bargaining power to be able to be at the, like at the front of the queue Mm -hmm. to acquire doses. Yeah. Okay. Um, Moving on. I did, um, I want to briefly mention um, this report that taxpayers are paying at least $59 million for major government ads um, uh, ahead of the upcoming election, uh, things including the, um, what's well, it, positive energy campaign, for example, mm. which if you haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like Instagram um, infographic yeah. aesthetic. It's very like big bold colors but then you read it and you're like what are you actually what are you actually telling us <laughs> yeah um, so like that kind of spending is fairly normal in the lead up to an election campaign but it's always useful to see what exactly they're doing in terms of advertising especially in light of how badly we did at cop 26 definitely yeah. um to have this kind of advertising campaign about you know you know, positive energy and that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of Australia's net zero, and I put that in exaggerated air quotes because we definitely don't have a net zero plan, um, relies on not only technology that's not proven to work, like carbon capture, but some like there is j- also like blanket statements of technology that doesn't exist yet. Just the assumption that we will develop technology that mm. will eventually take us down to net zero. It's just wild. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I'll be interested to see 
you know, what Ella makes of all this yes. as a young person because um, it's really going to, I mean, it's affecting us now, but it's really going to have a, a much more serious effect on future generations. I'm looking forward to her interview because the school climate strikes, I, I feel like they're the ones that really make politicians uncomfortable yeah. because they have to actually see the kids that they're, yeah. <laughs> whose futures they're jeopardising. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went, um, I think it was the one just before, like in 2019, and it's just so amazing and also equally heartbreaking to yeah. see that many children out there because it's like, okay, you shouldn't have to do this. Yeah. We should already be taking care of you yeah. um, and the planet. But, yeah, it was. It, it's also it's great to see young people not caring about whether, you know, what politicians say about, you know, they should be staying at school yeah. instead yeah. of... Well, I guess they, like, get it at the it, at its most purest form that mm. it is just a bunch of jargon at the end of the day. You don't have to understand the system to understand what they're trying to say. Mm. And it makes it as simple as, you know, yeah, a school child or a school children looking at a politician and being like, you're just full of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just shut up. <laughs> um one other thing i'd like to bring up um there is currently um a campaign um to boycott the melbourne queer film festival um until they stand with palestine it's mqff4palestine.glitch.me um the situation is basically that earlier this year MQFF together program not one single film from Africa or the Arabic speaking world, and but they also programmed um, an Israeli director and included a retrospective of, of his previous films, which have been widely criticised for pinkwashing Israeli apartheid. Um, so um, BDS Australia, uh, Boycott and Divestment Sanctions Australia, emailed um, the festival to cancel their own screening of their film because they didn't want to stand next to the pinkwashing of um, Israeli forces. Um, and so there is a letter that you can send to Spiro Ekonopoulos, um to demand better coverage for Palestine and no progressive for pal- progressive except for Palestine mm-hmm. um, views. W- yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say it was also uh, Palestine National Day yesterday, November 15. And if you didn't get a chance, uh, Jacob and I spoke with Jessica Morrison from APAN um, and – yeah, I, as, as an ally, as a non-Palestinian ally, Jessica really articulated really well why it is so important for Australia to to stand with Palestine and what that would mean mm. for for Israel, but also for the rest of the world. So definitely check that out as well. Yeah, it, it's really important that we continue the momentum that was started in May this year, and you know we've had continuing coverage of. Um, coverage or lack of coverage of Palestine in the Australian mm. media uh, and have talked to many Palestinian activists on, on Tuesday, Brecky, and o- across the week. Um, so, yeah, it's a have a look at the letter. Um, please send um, your own signature as well to the director. Last thing yes. that we want to talk about, we're going to end on some good news. It is that Britney Spears is now free. Yes, Yay! after 13 years, the conservatorship has ended, which is huge. so incredible. Yeah, it, it's such a touchstone for like I think everyone our age, like you know, like mm-hmm. yeah. mid twenties to early thirties, like it's like 
grown up as teenagers watching Britney and like seeing her struggles and it's such a incredible moment to see her finally be free Mm. hopefully like she can just do whatever she wants and if that's just to disappear that's fine oh i (laughs) feel like she needs you've done enough it's okay she deserves yeah (laughs) she needs some serious r and r yeah definitely um and i think just like the whole thing bringing to light in general the conservatorship uh like system and how it works uh, that affects so many people, especially in the U S and even here uh, has been really helpful for some people to understand how I guess controlling it can be. Mm. It's almost become like a symbolic case for a lot Mm. of people. Yeah. Yes. Like it's not legally applicable here, but I think it's one of those things that people will think about when it comes to similar arrangements in Mm. Australia um, or, you know, on a state by state basis and thinking about, you know, removing autonomy from people Mm -hmm. who are in those situations well to celebrate that we would (laughs) like to play her track uh stronger for you all this morning so here she is this is britney spears with stronger
It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. We're now going to go to a chat that Jan Bartlett from Tuesday Home Time had with Rowan Araf, who is from the Australian Centre for International Justice. And they spoke about Israel labelling Palestinian civil society and human rights advocates as terrorists. And we begin the segment with Rowan Araf. The Israeli Defence Ministry, joined by other agencies of the State of Israel, issued designations according to a 2016 Israeli law, an anti-terrorism law designating six Palestinian civil society and human rights organizations as so-called terrorist organizations. These organizations are the Defense for Children International Palestine. Now, DCI Palestine advocates for Palestinian children um, subject to a military court system. We know that the military court system has an approved, uh, a conviction rate, rather, of almost 100%. Al-Haq is the leading human rights legal centre and organisation in the West, in the occupied West Bank, and they've been around for 42 years. There's Ad-Damir, which is a prisoners' rights and supports organisation. They support Palestinian political prisoners um, and have been also for over 30 years. There's also the Union of Agricultural Work Committees. Now, they support farmers resisting land grabs and other impacts of Israel's settler colonialism on agriculture and livelihoods. There's also the Bissan Center for Research and Development. They've also been around for over 20 years, and they advocate for civil rights, human rights, and socioeconomic rights. And finally, there's the Union of Palestinian Women's Committees. Now, they're a feminist and progressive grassroots Palestinian women's organization. They're the six civil society and Palestinian human rights organizations that have been targeted in this latest outrageous decision of the Israeli government. How does the Israeli government justify this action? You know, I think it's baseless accusations and allegations that have, you know, it's a campaign that has been waged by the Israeli government and its proxies for a number of years. They are penalizing and criminalizing these organizations for exposing the catalog of Israeli abuses. And so I think this is uh, what really needs to be seen as the, as the real reason that Israel is, has now targeted the work, the critical human rights work of the, these organizations um, by trying to distract them from the really important documenting and advocacy that they do in Palestine and internationally, of course, 
And so this is really the reason that Israel has now targeted these organisations. And I don't think it will stop there. How will it distract them? As we've seen, I think in the last week it's distracted them in a way that they have now had to uh, wage a campaign themselves to seek the support of ordinary people and civil society around the world and governments and the international community to speak up. I mean, I think the main concern is that the consequences of this new measure, um, as I said, it's going to criminalise their work and outlaw their work, but it's going to licence Israeli occupation authorities to close their offices seize their assets, arrest and imprison their staff. And it's also going to prohibit funding and public expression of support for their work. Now, a lot of these organisations are heavily reliant on outside sources of funding, particularly from European governments. So this is an attack on their work uh, that is supposed to target their donors. I mean, this is, as I said, an ongoing campaign. Israel's proxies have, for many years, tried to target the institutional donors and government donors of these organisations by baseless allegations and and accusations that we're seeing today. So I think uh, the distraction is, of course, that, you know, they are documenting occupation abuses and apartheid crimes in Palestine, and now they have had to shift track to try and defend the the work that they do. Um, And so I think that's the huge distraction that they face now. And it's, again, not just a distraction, it's a really serious attempt at criminalising their work and there are serious grave risks for the safety of the staff but also of the organisations themselves. I mean, these organisations, it's important to say, they've already had their offices ransacked and property confiscated, equipment such as computer and evidence taken and not returned. Um, This just We just saw this happen a few months ago with DCI Palestine and it's happened with the other organisations as well. So this is the really the nature of the Israeli beast that we're looking at, the occupation in, um, in its uh, exposed. Um, now it's targeting human rights defenders and human rights organisations and Palestinian civil society. Well, there's been a call out to international groups and also countries. What's been the response? I, I think civil society has really responded um, strongly. Uh, there has been statements from different organizations and partners all around the world who have, you know, been outraged by the decision that this is an attack on themselves. In fact, a really strong statement from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International said that this is an attack not just on the Palestinian uh, human rights movement, but on the international human rights movement itself. And um, I think this is really the tenor of the response that we've seen internationally. I think um, governments have been slow to respond, uh, but we did see a really interesting statement from European uh, European governments yesterday, uh, including the Belgian. I'm just going to read it to you here. The Belgian foreign minister said that they take these decisions, these accusations of terrorism seriously, and they cannot be used to to prevent legitimate activities. Further, she said, previous accusations turned out to be unfounded, We will ask for clarifications. And importantly, she said civil society has an important role in promoting human rights and humanitarian law. Their work is more and more under pressure. They deserve our support. And I think this is a really interesting contrast to the response we've had from the Australian government so far, which has uh, yesterday we uh, saw a response to questions from Senator Rice at Senate Estimates by Minister for Foreign Affairs, Maurice Payne, who said that they've just sought clarification and further information from Israeli authorities. And I think 
that that's not enough, that the Australian government is just waiting for this so-called information um, before responding and taking action. And while that, that's a good step, I think it needs to be a stronger response from the Australian government. The Australian government purports to support human rights defenders around the world. So it needs to support Palestinian human rights defenders from this really dangerous attack on their work. But when we're looking at the, the recent past, it seems that it doesn't matter who reacts to what the Israeli government has done, they seem to just go on their merry way and just keep on doing it because they know that they've got support in certain countries of the world who don't care what seems to be whatever Israel does, they can just do it. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, you know, it's a brazen act. And we said in our solidarity statement, the Australian Human Rights Community Solidarity Statement, that it represents an emboldened Israel that systematically violates the rights of Palestinians with impunity, but more importantly, going to your uh, your point, Jan, that it's buttressed by the international community who have for decades challenged, failed to challenge rather, um, and confront Israel's human rights abuses by imposing meaningful and effective measures that are available at their disposal to respond to these egregious abuses um, by Israeli occupation authorities. And we say that this includes successive Australian governments who enter into agreements that foster Israeli defence industry partnerships. And of course, how can't we forget Australia's abysmal voting record and interventions in international forums, such as at the Human Rights Council, um, at the United Nations Security Council and General Assembly, and of course last year's intervention at the International Criminal Court to try and prevent an investigation into international crimes in Palestine from proceeding. And I'd imagine that you can't think of another developed country that gets away with what Israel gets away with. No, I mean I, I, I mean I can't because, you know, Israel has portrayed itself as a democratic, you know, Western government with with a rule of law, and I think this is really now the false image that others are beginning to see, and that it is really acting in concert and alike with regimes such as Bahrain, Egypt, Belarus. You know, I think this is like for like. They are exposing themselves for the authoritarian regime that they really are. And we have to keep remembering that it's the it's the citizens of Palestine who are going to suffer from this, the women, the children, those suffering human rights abuses, if they don't have those groups keeping an eye, a watching brief on what's happening to them. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's the main, um, that's the really important and critical role that these organisations play. The, the fact that at least three of these organisations, which are ACIJ, Australian Centre for International Justice, they're our partners. Um, we worked with them together earlier this year in a joint submission to DFAT, which I know you and I have talked about before on your show. These organisations, DCI Palestine, Al Haq, and Al Zamir, they have provided uh, critical legal support for Palestinian victims at the International Criminal Court. They provided evidence, they provided legal analysis and submissions to the Office of the Prosecutor. Of course, we know there's um, an investigation into the situation in Palestine at the International Criminal Court. And they provide that critical support and monitoring of Israeli abuses um, and occupation abuses. But also, uh, they monitor the abuses of the Palestinian authorities, uh, such as the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, 
but also Hamas authorities uh, for Palestinian human rights organizations that operate in Gaza. None of these groups, I should say, these six groups, they're all based in the occupied West Bank and not in occupied Gaza. But of course, the relationships and links between the t- between all of these organizations are, are important and fundamental for Palestinian civil society as a whole. That was a snippet of a discussion that Jan Bartlett had with uh, Rowan Araf about Palestinian civil society. If you would like to support them, there is a petition currently on the Australian Centre for International Justice website. Uh, it started on the 27th October. It's still going. We'll pop the link in our show notes later today. This interview originally aired on Tuesday Home Time on uh, 9th of November. And you can chat, uh, catch Jan Bartlett on 3CR every Tuesday between 4 and 6 p.m. We're going to jump into a song now by Miss Carrie Stacks, who is a producer, DJ and songwriter based in South London. Uh, Miss Carrie Stacks has definitely worked hard to get where she is. And I just wanted to, before we play the song, uh, read this quote, which I absolutely loved, um, reading an interview with her that I think reflects her sound quite well as well. She said, it's important to support your friends, whether they stay in church, hit the club or go to the mosque, get depressed, take drugs, dance badly, make messes. Most importantly, though, when they finally figure themselves out and feel free. This song is called Runnin'. Oh, 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 oh,
That was Ms. Carrie Stacks with Runnin'. All right, we've got two very special guests uh, on the show right now. Uh, let me just tell you exactly a little bit about uh, why they've come on the show. So Gulu and B run a podcast called Bitch WTF, which tackles all things life, love, career, relationships, parenting, and finances with a heavy focus on self-love, all with a culturally and linguistically diverse twist. Being the children of migrant families, both B and G were subjected to overcoming many cultural adversities as they made Melbourne, Australia their home. So during the second lockdown of COVID in Melbourne in 2020, the duo had an idea, a podcast that would aim at providing simplified education to those that have a barrier to the English language and also to bring light to intimate conversations, to broaden perspectives and draw commonality and empathy between people who may be different from us. GMB are on the show to chat to us about the inspiration behind Bitch WTF and what they aim to do with the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Hi, Genevieve. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Really good. Um, So let's jump straight into it. I believe you started this project during the COVID-19 pandemic. Could you chat to us about how the podcast got started? Did it spur specifically out of lockdown? Look, it did. Um, B and I, uh, this is G, B and I connected um, during COVID. We had both come out of failed marriages and we were also speaking to a lot more of our community and um, our friendship groups, predominantly in the cold community. And um, we identified that there was this theme coming through, that we had all been struggling with some kind of understanding and coming to grips with our upbringing, predominantly around relationships and not only intimate relationships, but relationships with ourselves. We felt as though there were these masks we were carrying and we didn't really understand how to connect, A, with ourselves and and with the wider people that we were coming in contact with. Um, And even our environment, we were finding that there were a lot of substance abuse and just abuse in general because people were just trying to numb these feelings of pain and so we trawled these thousands and thousands of podcasts trying to find something that would at least resonate with the way that we were feeling. And so we had a conversation. We said, you know what, let's just start something. And we definitely had no idea on what you know doing a podcast was all about. Sure, did we feel fearful? Of course we did. But we just sat with it and we thought, you know what, this is what a lot of people out there are feeling. And um, it's okay. You know, we're not going to go up in flames and... You know, we knew that the fear, the only way through the fear was to go through the fear. And so we decided that we would um, do the homework, do the research, get the knowledge. Do We did our own little surveys around people and we came up with Bitch What The Fuck and we thought, you know what, let's just get out there and, um, you know, talk to people, understand people. And then the more that we started to get the support, the first 10 were probably the most difficult, Genevieve, but once we started to get the momentum and we were hearing feedback it just gave us courage to show up each week and yes there was negative feedback and that's okay you know we're not for everyone um but we're absolutely fine with that because that's exactly what life truly was telling us and in that discomfort we started to get really comfortable with who we were as humans and as we had followers come share their story saying hey look I feel like that too I'm like this too I I went through that too it just helped us build and their support supported us and then inadvertently we just 
created something that we just absolutely, absolutely are passionate about. Um, and I think that's pretty much why we do yeah. the podcast week in, week out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important to have, I guess, content like this so people can relate to it and especially under the premise of uh as you said, going through that fear, which I think if anything, COVID has uh, definitely amplified a lot of um, some anxieties for people. So I think that's super important. Uh, Just going more into the podcast and its format, uh, what is exactly the premise of the podcast and is there a theme to each interview or is it more like a free-flowing conversation? The podcast itself is what we want to coin as a conversation because we don't want it to be um, almost like it's a preaching podcast or something that forces information down someone's throat. What we do like is the fact that um, the conversations, the natural organic conversations tend to have fallen by the wayside. And so for us, we felt that the social structures were breaking down and people were losing the art of conversing and the natural hand-me-down wisdom that were coming down from our elders from generations to generations were absolutely being replaced by the wisdom of our mobile phones and social media. And so for us, we felt that the personal experiences that we were being, you know, living through and were evidenced by us of not being seen and heard and understood, um, our podcast aims at tackling these kind of issues. So what we try to do, Genevieve, is have we target um, all people, all people from walks of life, and we try to understand exactly how they are trying to navigate. You know, coming from one culture and immersing themselves into another culture. And we had an episode recently on the third culture kid, which was extremely successful because we created this um, new human taking. You know, it was like a hybrid, like a hybrid car taking petrol and gas, and <laughs> Um, you know, so that that for us was pretty much where our podcast is about, and just hearing how people have navigated, you know, their own journeys, and that for us then spurs new ideas into doing further episodes. But we sit down and we have our planning, and we do talk to a lot of people. So it's never about what we want; it's, it's more about what our audience want from us. For sure, I think it definitely fills a gap that people are kind of yearning for like connection communication yeah as you said things that are seemingly seem to be disappearing in I guess the format that we have used them for thousands of years through social media and everything and especially for uh, the coddle culturally and linguistically diverse background communities uh, during COVID and lockdown obviously would have been incredibly hard. I wanted to focus in on, I guess, your uh, focus on the coddle community. Why do you think it's important to have conversations uh, with this community and to amplify uh, their voices? Hi, Genevieve. This is B. Firstly, I think it's very important because this was definitely a community that wasn't um, covered in all the podcasts that were out there, like he was a G set at the start. So our experiences coming from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds were not really heard. The stories of individuals need to be heard, and that was one of the main aims of our podcast as well, and that's why the guests that we have... Um, share their stories and experiences of how they came to Australia and what they feel as a third culture child as well. Um, 
So once we do unpack the stories behind every individual, then, then we know the human behind them. Yeah, definitely. Um, as, and I love that take as well. The, I mean, having conversation with someone is the best way to, I guess, broaden your perspective. Um, has there been any, I guess you mentioned one before, any conversations that you've particularly been inspired by? I think I've been inspired by all our guests on our show, but um, uh, particularly, what, well, it was our first interview as well, um, episode 10, uh, Archie Red Rose um, is definitely, both she and I um, really, really still love that episode um, and his journey of um, being a paraplegic and also coming from a Turkish background and how he had to navigate all of that in his life and he's an absolute legend for doing it. Yeah, I mean, just hearing people, and I mean, I feel so lucky, especially being on the radio and talking to people and talking to them about their stories, but it does feel really special when someone can tell you about that uh, in conversation. Um, in terms of the process, it obviously sounds extremely cathartic um, and, you know, has been so pivotal for uh, both of you in terms of, as you said, uh, getting out of this fear um, and uh, quite a difficult time as well. Uh, what have been some of the things that you've learnt about, I guess, each other and life more generally? Um, well, I think what comes up for us, Genevieve, is the fact that we've learnt that, you know, as humans, everyone wants to know that they matter. Everyone knows that we're here, we've arrived here, and, you know, there's so much, there's so much disconnection out there and so much blaming and shaming and gaming that we felt as though, you know, we, if we start to talk to each other and gain a deeper understanding of what's really going on for the human, um, you know, look, I, we've had many conversations where people say, you know, I don't like that particular group of ethnicity, but you guys are different. And we're going, well, we're not really. We're more sane than what we are different. You know, every single human out there is 50 shades of grey. You know, it's just what do you want to see? What do you want to hear? If you're going to put them in a box, and make them feel like they are um, already defined, then you're already closed. So you, you're not going to see what's going on behind this curtain. And I think once you start stripping away the surface stuff, because everyone starts off with the surface stuff and really try to you know, not have that barrier up and then um, show that you're also vulnerable and you can talk about the stuff. And what we want to do in our conversations, we recently did one on addictions and, we, and that was one that, we had been struggling with for a while because we were thinking, should we, should we not? Should we, should we not? But then as we started to watch everyone around us and listening to all the other information that's coming through, we found that, hey, just about everyone, if not everyone, struggling with something and they need something to actually numb this part of their life. And I thought, that's us. You know, we're just as, we're, we are exactly like that. Like we come across groomed and everything like that in our everyday life, but deep down inside, my goodness, the pain, the numbing, we're just the same. And I think that's what we wanted to, that's the message. We want, that's what we've learned. We, we've learned that we are more same than what we are different. Definitely. I love that point, especially, I guess, like 
a lot of people kind of assuming that um, some people have, I guess, bad intentions, but that's quite rarely the case. It's mostly just misunderstanding, uh, not really seeking out that commonality that you mentioned. Um, obviously, you're making this for an audience. What would be your, I guess, ideal, uh, uh, what's the word, ideal conclusion or ideal, what do you hope people would come away from listening to your podcast? We always, we love, we show up. Like even through COVID where we were locked up, you know, through um, so many bouts of, you know, the actual versions of this lockdown, we show up because we would like people to understand that, you know, it's not always easy. Like we don't show up because we have an easy life. We've both got full-time jobs. We want people to basically say... You can do something that you're passionate about and you make the time. We all The one thing that doesn't discriminate, Genevieve, is time. Everyone gets 24-7 if you're lucky to have another day. And so when people say we don't make time for the things that we really enjoy, there's something deeper going on. So what we hope people actually come away with is that our topics are well thought through and they're relatable. I think that's the main thing. It's got to be relatable. We, we don't want to be talking about things that people are saying, what the hell are these two girls talking about? <laughs> You know, we want to we want to simplify, as Albert Einstein says. We want to take these big issues and speak to our audience that possibly didn't get the educational opportunities. You know, have arrived here, had language barriers that didn't really know how to go and where to go, and all they did was survive. And through the survival, they've almost lost their sense of being. And I think for us, you know, if we can just return back and restore just the tiny little bit tidbits for them. That's what we hope they take away. If they can take away one little key in every episode and and basically say, I never thought about it like that. That's a new perspective. And I think we're winning. That, 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 that's our hope and that's our aim. Definitely. I think that you're really doing an incredible job and really hitting the nail on the head in terms of, you know, making things accessible for people, making them relatable, making them not so scary as well if it's just a casual conversation. So honestly, well done. It sounds absolutely incredible. Uh, just Thanks. one. Yeah, no worries. Just one last question just before we wrap up. Where can people listen to the podcast if they want to access it? Uh, people can listen wherever they listen to their podcasts. We're up on all the platforms. So the typical Spotify, Apple, um, iHeartRadio, ev everywhere. We're on all of those platforms. Okay, cool. And just, just as a final note, Genevieve, I just wanted to almost also share with your listeners and ours the fact that all of our podcasts are conversations. We do not sit back and edit any of them, even with our guests. We basically feel that most conversations... True conversations are not edited conversations and there's enough edited work out there and a lot of masks and false stuff out there that we want to come across as raw as we can because we are also human and we're struggling with a lot of things ourselves. Yes, of course. And I think that's such an important component, especially in such a preened and pruned world where everything is so clinical. I think that's absolutely so, so refreshing. No filters. No filters. Yes. Love that. Um, well, it's been such an absolute pleasure talking to you, GMB. Thank you so much for sharing uh, all this info about your podcast. I think it absolutely sounds amazing. Thank you. No, thank you thank for reaching you. out. Yeah. We are humbled. Absolutely, absolutely humbled. Thank no worries. Much. No worries at all. 
Um, that was B and G from the podcast Bitch WTF talking about uh, what they try to focus on in their podcast. Uh, definitely more of a conversation uh, and amplifying culturally and linguistically diverse communities. Definitely go listen to that where you listen to your podcasts. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. We're now going to go to a track. This is the latest release from Kuku Yelanji and Wakaman artist Jessica Malboy, and it is her song Glow.
Welcome back to 3CR uh, Community Radio Tuesday Breakfast. It's just past eight and I'm really excited to uh, welcome our next guest. Ella Simons is a 15-year-old climate school strike organiser who was recently in Milan prior to the COP26 summit. She joins us today to speak about what young Australians want to see from the federal government and why making a stand on climate action is so important. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Ella. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you much. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Could you please start by telling us more about yourself and how you got involved in climate activism? Sure. So in 20, November 2018, the first ever global climate strike was held. Um, I went to that strike with my friends, my mum, and I had never been to a protest before, and I guess that was just a massive point in my life, um, a journey into activism. And so from then, I became involved with School Strike for Climate and with AYCC, the Australian Climate Coalition, um, and also the federal election campaign to do with climate. Um, and I helped organise the September 20 strike, which is, you know, the major strike. There were almost 200,000 in Melbourne. Um, but then, obviously, I guess COVID threw a bit of a curveball into all that. We still try to organise online. And we did have a strike earlier this year in that little gap between lockdowns. Mm. Um, but, yeah. That sounds incredible. Um, yeah, you, you sound like you really got into it. Very quickly. Um, earlier this year, you attended the Youth for Climate event in Milan. Could you tell us more about this experience and the paper that was drafted at the end of the conference? Yeah, so in about February, I applied to the pre-COP event, Youth for Climate in Milan. Obviously, it was not the expectation that I would actually attend due to COVID. Um, but like... We found, Mum and I found out we were going two days before the conference, which was pretty insane. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, it's pretty hard to go overseas, but we managed to get there. And then once we were there, the actual conference was across three days. And so there was like a main plenary and then there were our working groups and breakout groups. So I kind of started off in the working group of climate conscious society and really looked at, you know, mobilisation and movement building. And then I moved more towards the non-state actors working group, which is where these, this discussion on the fossil fuel industry really came about. And I guess looking at the things that have gone on at COP26, those exact same discussions were being had at pre-COP. You know, there were even disagreements at pre-COP on abolishing the fossil fuel industry, on phasing out rather than phasing down. Um, so to see those exact same discussions be happening at COP is pretty wild. Yeah, it's it just goes to show I think a lot of uh, young people are already very much switched on on the money. Um, and, yeah, it, I think the all these international leaders can, can learn a lot from you. Um, tell me a bit more about the atmosphere at Youthful Climate. Uh, were there any speakers that you found particularly engaging and, and rousing? What was it like meeting uh, young climate activists from all around the world? Um, that was definitely the most incredible part was actually getting to meet all these people. Um, on the opening plenary, both Vanessa Nakato from Uganda and Greta Thunberg from Sweden spoke. And 
you know, their speeches just really put, I guess, what lots of people are thinking. Greta saying, talking about blah, 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 you know, all our leaders, empty promises. It, it's the same from all our politicians right now. Um, so to hear them speak in front of all these people, the same thoughts I'm having is pretty special. But also just getting to hang out with the, you know, Fridays for Future and young activists afterwards. There was a strike on a Friday that we were in Milan. There were 50,000 people striking in the streets of Milan, which was just incredible to be in um, and incredible to be a part of that. Um, and, you know, obviously post-COVID, we haven't really been able to be in a protest with that many people. And so being in there was just incredible. And there were chants from all different languages, people from across the world from that had come to the pre-COP and were striking with us. So that was just an incredible experience. It sounds so powerful to be part of an international movement, definitely. Um, I know COP26 is now over, but what were your hopes for, for the conference um, before it, it started? Um, I really just wanted to see our government, being the Australian government, being called out. Um, and also to see the leaders, you know, putting in some pretty ambitious targets. And I guess it's very disappointing that... Um, they, in the end, I guess that major thing about phasing down fossil fuels rather than phasing out, phasing down is just not good enough. And I spent so much time at pre-COP working on these fossil fuel policies. And so it's just disappointing to see that that didn't really stick as well as we had hoped. I guess it's a start, but it's just not going to be good enough in this climate. You, you mentioned this just now, but I wanted to discuss... Um, Australia's role in a bit more detail. So it is widely known that Australia is lagging in its commitments to climate action and it's very clear that the government is proactively against ambitiously reducing carbon emissions and divesting in coal and fossil fuels. Um, In a bit more detail, could you tell us what your take is on Australia's role in the fight to save the planet and what concrete action you would like to see from our federal government? Australia is such an important country in taking action on climate because we have so many resources and we do have the funding. Australia is one of the sunniest countries. You know, we have wind, we have sun. We could be a renewable energy superpower. Um, But instead, our government keeps moving towards fossil fuels to dirty gas and energy. And we just need to see our government actually commit to stronger 2030 targets and then have a goal and have a plan to reach our 2050 targets. We're falling behind our needs to meet the Paris Agreement and we've got to meet that. You know, we've signed that and we've got to see our government held accountable to meeting the Paris Agreement. Yes. Um, we Obviously, a lot of pressure has been put on from our allies. You know, a lot of pressure has put on even for Scott Morrison to attend COP. We saw the Queen pressuring him to attend COP. And I think when people like that step in, it really shows that we're falling behind. Um, And, yeah, we're just so far behind. We don't have, like, several more pledges. You know, governments have put in stronger targets for 2030 and Australia just sticks to what they've got. And we really need to see them put in more ambitious targets. Yes, I can imagine that is, I mean, it is, we all know here at 3CR, it's very incredibly frustrating to see the lack of action from our federal government. Um, And especially, you know, our Pacific Island neighbours, they're at the forefront of all of this. They are 
the they're currently being affected by by climate change and it's only going to get worse for them um what i know i know you're only one person and, and you can't really speak on behalf of your entire generation but speaking to your friends and speaking to other young people at pre-cop what is the current sentiment a young uh, among young people at the moment i think young people are just so frustrated you know I talk to lots of people and maybe they started to see a career in this, but I don't want to have a career in this. I don't want to have to be fighting for, you know, human, like for my rights and for everyone's rights my whole life. And I think there's just a lot of frustration and it definitely feels like we're running out of time. But when you attend events like pre-cop, you know, it fills me with hope because I see young people that care. But I just, every year counts, every cop counts and we just need to, really be pressuring our government and the next federal Australian election is so important because if we elect the parties into power that are going to be taking action, then we'll hopefully actually see this action happen. Um, and I think it's just to know that, you know, everyone's voice is so powerful and young people have really found a way to make their voice heard. Young generations have never been as powerful and have, you know, been sharing their voices we are now. And so... Everyone needs to know how powerful their voices and that they can make that difference. Definitely, there does seem to be a lot of momentum within the uh, climate action movement uh, that's driven by young people. Um, speaking of which, if there are any young people out there wanting to get involved in climate activism, what would you recommend as a first step? Um, sign up to School Strike for Climate. There's a website online. Um, sign up to AYCC, the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. They run incredible workshops and trainings to actually build the skills to be taking action. If you're a First Nations or Indigenous young person, Seed Mob um, is just an incredible organisation who actually got some people over to COP26, which was amazing. Um, there are so many organisations out there, and I guess you just yeah, AYCC, School Strike, the ACS, it's all organisations that have already, you know, been built up um, and they're going to be training people up for the federal election. They're going to be training people up for the next campaign. Awesome. Well, we will pop all of those links in our show notes later this morning if there are any young people out there or parents who, who are having these discussions with their young people and, and want to get involved. Speaking of skills, um. I know you said you you don't want to make a career out of this because it it should just be something that is obvious that of course you know governments are going to be working towards. But uh, by joining the climate movement, what skills have you acquired? Um, I have definitely teamwork. Um, working in a group of teenagers, I guess specifically, you know, there are always disagreements, but it's incredible to see how teenagers have worked together to make stuff happen you know we might all have been the closest friends if we'd met at school but we can organize professionally we can organize events for thousands and tens of thousands of people um you know things i've never learned at school like budgeting how to put an event together i've learned how important our unions are and how you can contact unions how you can work with unions um i've learned about all different organizations you know, I've learned so much actual climate science and the statistics and the things we need. I mean, I've learned how to tell my story and how you can empower people and how to have meaningful conversations. And I guess just so many things that you probably wouldn't learn by the time you're in year nine at high school. Um, so I think 
just joining an organisation or a movement like that teaches you so many different things and gives you so many skills for the rest of your life and so many skills that you that are so important. Well, that's an incredible note to end on, Ella. I think you're right. Um, it sounds like you've just had the most amazing experience and, and you are doing, you and other young people in this country and around the world are doing such important work and, and really leading the way um, with with climate justice here. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us on 3CR this morning. Hopefully, you know, things will radically change and and you know, the next time maybe you come on 3CR, we'll be having more positive conversations about about climate and about our federal government. But for the time being, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your morning to speak to us today. Thank you for having me. So that was Ella Simons, 15-year-old um, climate school striker who went to COP, uh, pre-COP uh, in Milan and was just telling us about some incredible things. I just feel yeah. stunned. I, I'm speechless. <laughs> First of all, like, you know, just being so politically engaged and thoughtful at mm. that age is always just a remarkable thing. And I, the, the thing that really got me at the end there, when like just the other things that you learn when you, you're in an activist movement, like, you know, the importance and the power of unions, yeah. like that's fantastic. Yeah. It's so good. It's such a... Honestly, it's very humbling yeah. <laughs> lesson mm. to us all. And that they work <laughs> as well. I feel like, you know, some people can be very disenchanted by... If, very cynical. Um, yeah, very mm. cynical if, you know, uh, group action, uh, unions or like grassroots movements work, but they do work mm. and, you know, teenagers are doing a better job. Yeah. It seems like... Definitely, <laughs> yeah. I-, I think we're all given to a bit of cynicism sometimes, but like I think it's really important to see the uh, the energy and the optimism like even when you're distraught at like you know setbacks that mm. you know so optimistic and it just wanting to do better it's yeah it's really amazing yeah uh yeah i'm i'm still <laughs> just like trying to process everything that ella was saying because it was also important um we'll be back right after this 100 meters 75 meters 50 metres, 25 metres, 15 metres, 10 metres, 5 metres. Grass fires move faster than you think. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back, everyone, to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55 a.m., or maybe you're streaming online. We are so excited to chat to our very own Evie this morning. <laughs> it, it's, it feels like we're having a live guest, which is so exciting because yeah. we haven't been able to have a live guest in the studio for so long. So uh, welcome, Evie. Do you want to tell us what you are keen to chat about this morning just a pleasure fung uh, <laughs> um i actually wanted to put a different hat on this morning um today i'm like um i want to speak as someone who is the co-convener of the victorian pride lobby uh one of the things that we've been really pushing hard um in one of our recent campaigns is making everyone aware of the equal opportunity 
brackets religious exemptions bill 2021 which is currently uh being just introduced into victorian parliament it's currently in the lower house um the bill narrows exemptions that currently exist in our anti-discrimination laws that allow faith-based schools and organizations to discriminate against lgbtqi plus workers and students and people who rely on their support um it's a fairly wide-ranging loophole that basically this bill is looking to close. Um, The reforms will prohibit faith-based schools and organisations from firing, expelling or treating unfairly employees, students and people who rely on their services simply because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, So in highlighting this bill um, and the importance of it passing, um, we've been sharing some stories from people who have been affected by that loophole. Um, as you can imagine, um, not a lot of people get to choose what school they go to or what schools they work at. Um, so a lot of people who are gay or lesbian or also transgender have had to be in environments where they may not necessarily feel safe disclosing um, their identity. Uh, One of the stories um, that we talked about was um, a student called Evie McDonald. Um, She has um, shared her story, you know, in documentaries and news stories since um, 2011 and 2015. Um, She is a girl who um, transitioned in childhood Um, But unfortunately, she went to a religious school in the Mornington Peninsula and was not um, allowed to identify as female. Um, So she was made to attend seven sessions of chaplaincy counselling by the school designed to prevent her affirming her gender as a girl. Um, And when her teacher asked the class to divide into separate groups for girls and boys, uh, Evie said that she wanted to go with the girls, but her teacher refused and physically dragged her towards the boys. Some really horrible, like, you know, Mm. sort of non like denying people affirming their gender. And so under these proposed laws, uh, schools like Evie's former school could no longer treat her unfairly or a student who came out as trans or gay. So, these are the kind of real life stories that impact people um, for like this loophole that has been, you know, used for so long. It kind of seems crazy that such a loophole exists, mm. especially in anti-discrimination laws. Um, uh, there is a lot of um, conversation uh, by, you know, um, Christian lobby groups who talk about, you know, the right to express religion. Unfortunately, sometimes this means that they also um, use this to discriminate against people as well. Yeah, it, it does sound, it, it sounds very archaic. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't, I yeah. don't know, it's sometimes it's incomprehensible that something like that could happen, that people or organisations could get away with, with, treating um, members of the LGBTIQ community so poorly and especially young people as well. Yeah, and also, like, another crazy thing about this loophole is that it's not just students or teachers, which are, you know, the primary example of people that might be affected. It also impacts people who um, seek out services from faith-based organisations. 
a story that we also have been sharing with people is um, in 2021, um, a person called Harley and their wife sought emergency accommodation from a faith-based organisation and Harley's wife was told that she would need to go to a men's shelter rather than access the safe facility as Harley because she was trans. Yeah. So, under the, again, under those proposed laws, um, people like Harley and uh, their wife w- could not be refused access to Victorian fun- government-funded goods, services or accommodation mm. on the basis of their orientation. So. I guess like a lot of people will be like, oh, why don't you just go somewhere else? Like don't yeah. go to the religious based, um, you know, schools or whatever. But, you know, these places get a lot of funding. Exactly. Um, the, yeah, the majority of funding, especially the schools are very affordable um, for people that, uh, I guess, come from lower socioeconomic mm-hmm. backgrounds. And so to say that is kind of just discrimination as well. Yeah. Um, and especially the charity-based organisations. Yeah, as you yeah. mentioned, like so many religious groups get funding to be able to provide these services. Yeah. Um, so it's really important. And like people, like I mentioned before, people don't have a choice a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. You know, if, if in your community the first um, resource or access that you get is to, you know, um, you know, the Salvos or St Vinnie's or something like that, you're going to take what you have available mm. to you. And they provide a service and that's the service. Yeah. Not, yeah. And they should be obliged to provide exactly. that service. Yeah. Um, there is one thing, though. Um, this is a good bill, but it could be improved. Um, so Victorian Pride Lobby and Equality Australia and a couple of other community organisations have been sort of campaigning to not only support the bill but recommend um, some improvements to it as well as it's being read in the lower house. Um, so... We believe that um, ensuring that LGBTQI plus people cannot be discriminated against by faith-based service providers when they provide any service to the public rather than only Victorian government-funded services. So we want to make that a very specific thing to make sure that, you know, it's not just taxpayer money. Mm, yeah. um, and then also closing loopholes that allow schools to avoid scrutiny when they they have rules on student dress, appearance and behaviour that might discriminate against LGBTQI plus students. So as you can imagine, um, you know, someone who is identifying as a different gender um, might be told that they have to adjust their hair or uniform in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are aspects of the Equal Opportunity Act that don't necessarily address those concerns and are, could be allowed to be exploited through that loophole. So, and, and these are all things that would make people feel so unsafe. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so it's basically, you know, at, at its core, it's just allowing students and teachers and pretty much anyone who seeks services from a faith-based organisation to be who they are and identify mm-hmm. as who they are. For sure. Um, so, yeah, so the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because this is a very urgent situation. The bill is, um, you know, before Parliament this week. Um, you need to take action to tell your MP to support the bill and ensure it's amended to better protect students from discrimination and, like I said before, to apply the rules to everyone, every organisation, no matter how they're funded. Um, we will put a link in the show notes um, to, uh, to a link to write to your MP via Equality Australia's website. Um, the Coalition Party Room is actually meeting today to determine their position. Um, you might have seen in The Age um, and, you know, in various publications that there's been a bit of a kerfuffle um, between those who are influenced by the Australian Christian Lobby and more conservative elements of 
the Liberal Party um, conflicting with um, what others have to say and what their beliefs are when it comes to um, this legislation. So, you know, if you're in a Liberal Party electorate, now's the time. Mm. Call your local MP, write them an email. Um, as I mentioned before, there's templates. Or, you know what, Use if you yourself have been impacted in such a way that you know that this bill could change, you know, another child's life or another teacher's life. Um, use that example. Mm-hmm. MPs really respond well to personal stories. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of the time they they need to be reminded that their constituents are affected by the, uh, the laws that they, um, they yeah. implement. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, you know, get in contact with your MP, make a noise about it. Like I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, there's been a bit of a distraction from this bill because of the pandemic laws uh, that are currently also going to be before Parliament today. Um, but this is equally important and it's in, like it's vital that we make a noise about it. Yeah, awesome. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Evie, for um, telling us more about that. And, yeah, I, I would highly recommend that people read up more about this. And Yeah, it and, would have completely slipped my radar mm, yeah. if you hadn't let me know. Yeah, And, and maybe check the links in our show notes uh, later this morning. We'll be back to wrap up the show right after this. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Welcome back everyone to 3CR Breakfast it's 8.27 when you're in the end of the show, so I thought maybe we could just wrap up and give a brief um, yeah, summary of, of what we looked at today. We started off by replaying a segment from Tuesday Home Time where Rowan Araf spoke to Jan about Palestinian civil society and, and Israel labelling them and other human rights advocates as terrorists. Uh, we then had the pleasure of speaking to G and B from Bitch WTF podcast, uh, which aims at having conversations with people about life generally, uh, specifically amplifying culturally and linguistically diverse people. And then we spoke with the amazing Ella Simons, who is a young climate school strike organiser who went to Milan for pre-COP, spoke to us about the conference, about what young people are doing um, to help save the planet and what she would like to see from our, our government. And then last up, we had a quick discussion about the Religious Exemptions Bill 2021 that is currently tabled in Victorian Parliament. Once again, write to your MPs and encourage them to pass that bill. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us again 
this morning on 3CR, um, make sure you tune into 3CR Breakfast every other morning this week. And as always, make sure you uh, stay tuned to 3CRs because up next is Accent of Women. <laughs> 